everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Coder Conversations. We have a special guest, Brian Pulliam. Uh, welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, we're definitely glad to have you here. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, wow. When I was in middle school and high school, I was a pretty uh, strong video game fanatic. So I wanted to go to school and learn how to make video games. And so I um, went to a college where I could take art and computer classes, uh, did game development for about six or seven years, uh, including game design for a children's software company, and then transitioned from there into working in various capacities for Microsoft, both as a vendor and then as a FTE. Worked there for about nine or 10 years and then transitioned to Zillow, uh, first as a PM and then as an engineering manager. And more recently, a one-year stint at Coinbase as an engineering manager. And uh, now I'm focused uh, full-time on a leadership and career coaching practice uh, as a founder for refactorcoaching.com. Oh, interesting. Uh, what made you want to get into coaching? Uh... Uh, I would say my it was accidental. My wife and I met playing volleyball. So volleyball as a sport was a big thing in our lives. I played probably 30 hours a week of volleyball in college, like a lot of volleyball. And, uh, oh. uh, and then my wife wanted to try out coaching. And I thought, oh, this is a dumb idea. Uh, like, um, and she sort of sort of dragged me along to the first few practices. And then I fell in love with it. Uh, if I was financially independent right now, I would probably go back to athletics coaching as well. Um, something about helping other people succeed and being successful with the experience you have and seeing somebody uh, succeed because of what, how you've helped them grow. That's just really fulfilling mm -hmm. for me. But I had to stop because my kids got old enough to where I couldn't be going with strangers' kids uh, every other weekend for six months out of a year. My own kids needed to see their parents. And we co my All wife right. and I coached together. So I had to stop and I was really sad. But uh, when I became a manager, and this is around 2015, 2016, I just didn't realize that coaching gave me this immense advantage for preparing me to be a good leader in, in tech as well. So I get to do about 80% of what I loved as an athletics coach, just by being a manager that cares a lot about the people that I lead. Hmm. So like uh, with your coaching, if somebody was to sign up, like what are some of the advantage that, advantages that you offer? Sure. So uh typical coaching uh, with me starts with a, a goals chat like it would with any other coach to sit down and mm -hmm. talk about well what is it that you want from this kevin you know are you trying to get promoted are you trying to get a new job are you trying to break into tech are you trying to switch from um, being an ic to a manager role and then talk about how coaching uh may or may not benefit that and how my background and um and what my process would look like is typically understanding deeply what your strengths are uh, what your values are if you're not clear about what those are already and just making sure that's in alignment with the goals that you want to go after and any good coach pretty much focuses on three things it's really coaching is just about empowering you to achieve your goals by focusing on how you can help yourself you know the goal is not that a coach is there 10 years from now just like in athletics right. the goal is that you learn something you, you know we teach you how to fish if you will and we do that through guided questions, feedback, and motivation. Sure. So like uh, with some of your current clients, what, what are some of the uh, success stories that, um, that they've been able to share? Sure. Uh, 
I have two clients right now that weren't in tech, but we're what we're like more like project managers or worked in marketing that wanted to get into the tech field because honestly, they just wanted to be, they wanted more compensation. They said, if I can do this job and do it for a tech company, I'll make more money. So uh, I've been helping two clients, one of them uh, in the railroad industry that wanted to get into tech. And um, she just accepted mm -hmm. an offer for 40% increase in salary. Um, and, uh, and really that was me sitting down with her and helping coach her through how to speak to the transferable skills. Because a lot of people not in tech can work in tech. They just don't know what to call things, right? You know, there's a right. certain jargon and lingo in yeah. in technology that probably sounds like a foreign language to someone who's not from tech, but it doesn't mean they can't do it. They just call it something else. And so I help right. them understand the dialect or the vernacular, right? Well, what is an epic? You know, if you ask someone outside of tech what an epic is, they're like, I, I like a really good movie. I don't know. That was epic, right? You know, <laughs> but... But that means something special in tech, right? It is like a group of user stories together that you deliver amongst some sort of theme to help you achieve your OKRs. If you know that and you can speak in that language with the recruiter in that mm -hmm. first phone call, you are much more likely to get through much farther through the process. Um, uh, and you and your uh, your background not being in tech doesn't work against you. You just need to know how to speak to it. So uh, my other client uh, was in marketing, but she was in a marketing agency and she wanted to work full time for uh, like long term with a single company, you know, not just rotate from project to project as a consultant. And uh, she got about a 45 or a 50 percent increase in her salary. Um, oh, wow. And uh, not only that, but um, they told her she could start six months after she signed her offer letter. So that way the current company she's wow. at, she can wait for the RSUs to vest. So she doesn't lose the RSU quarterly vest that's coming up. Um, they were, uh, she was going to use it just as a practice uh, interview. She didn't think she wanted to work there. And then they fell in love with her so much as a client that they kind of went outside the range for the salary, told her she could start six months later um, and uh, kind of ended up being the best of both worlds for her situation. Mm. Are a lot of cases like that where somebody transfers from a field that they're not necessarily in and they always have like these huge bumps and well, it might just be just tech having huge salaries compared to other professions. But um, what I'm trying to ask is, do you see that a lot where you can uh are all your clients always like a bump a huge bump in in um in salary whereas like 40 or 50 percent it's not always 40 or 50 but uh it is always more uh i have not right. yet coached someone who's making less money if they're going from outside right. of tech to into tech uh, you know i think that's what it that's what attracts them in the first place right as they hear about some of the salary differences and if you really sit down, Terrence, and you look at what they do day to day, it's yeah. not really that different in tech than it is somewhere else. You, right. sort of, you, know, you have to you have to do your homework and, you know, and, and learn some terminology and keep your skills up to date. But you have to do that right. with a lot of jobs that aren't in tech. So why not get compensated better yeah. for doing what is largely the same role? Yeah. I guess, uh, how would you teach somebody the pitfalls when it comes to like working in tech? Because sometimes there are, are cases where 
least in my experience, where if I'm working on a project and I don't have that uh, that resource that I can lean on, you know, like, hey, if I'm stuck on something and I can, you know, turn around and ask Kevin for some help, but then he's busy. Uh, how do you teach somebody to become resourceful? Yeah. So it it depends. Well, okay, that's that's an honest answer and it's not a very helpful answer. So <laughs> let, let's go deeper than that for a second. So just yesterday, uh, I did a team session where um, one of the clients I have is a manager and he's an engineering manager of a team of about five people. And some of the people on this team are leading uh, a, a high visibility project, you know, and maybe there's six other teams involved, but it's kind of a stretch assignment for this individual. His name's Sam. Yeah. And Sam isn't, uh, you know, if you were to paint very broad strokes, you know, he's a quintessential sort of semi introverted developer, you know, ne not necessarily somebody who's, who's super open with reaching out and asking for help. So one of the questions he had in this team session yesterday is like, Hey, how do I navigate this? Uh, similar yeah. to what you're describing. Uh, one, uh, I was, uh, per, uh, coordinating the strength session so that everybody on the team knows what everyone else is awesome at. So I, one of my, uh, one of the quotes I use to death in my coaching is that work is more like chess than checkers, right? It is this unique combination of all of these pieces on the board that move differently and in unison towards a common goal that achieve the greatest impact. So knowing that Terrence has different strengths than Kevin and Kevin has different strengths than Brian, it's not about everybody having the same strengths. It's about how do we leverage them just like we would in athletics. Mm. And so, uh, when I find out someone on my team is amazing at influencing other people, uh, I don't always have to look to my manager in order to get advice or to get help. I can go to one of my coworkers on the team. And if my coworker is busy, you know, we're working towards a deadline, then I go to my manager and my manager's job is not always to have the answer, but to make sure they can go find someone who can help me get the answer just like a good PM would. So, uh, I have them look first for themselves. You know, can you answer your question yourself? We don't want to bother people the first time we have right. a question, but if you've spent 30 minutes or 60 minutes, whatever that threshold is for your team's social norms, you know, this is something we talk about is we should all have an agreement of how hard we work on a problem before we ask someone else for help. Uh, Cause not everybody has the same number in mind when we start the conversation, uh, but say it's 60 minutes. If you get stuck, we all agree that you should ask the question in the team Slack channel. Hey, Kevin, I'm stuck on this thing. Uh, this GraphQL resolver issue. Like, I don't know how to handle this. Like, is, has anyone done this before? And the beauty mm -hmm. of asking in a something like a team Slack channel is uh, it can be there for other people to learn without even having to ask the question in the first place. Um, if I DM Terrence and I say, Terrence, can you teach me? Terrence might teach me, but then Terrence maybe get six other DMs over the next month asking <laughs> the exact same question, right? Well, that's not, yeah. I mean, Terrence may feel helpful, but but Terrence isn't scaling the sharing of his knowledge very well, right? He's not auto-scaling very well because his right. time is a zero-sum game. So um, encouraging behaviors where people ask questions in areas where they feel comfortable being vulnerable but also giving the other people the opportunity to learn or just remember that Brian asked that question three months ago. I can just go mm -hmm. and search in Slack and I can find the answer um, yeah. more quickly the next time. Does that answer your question? It's a little rambly, oh, but no, it's, you're good, man. Uh, okay, cool. it's, it's right on the nose. Thank you. Uh, I have a question. Like 
like you talked about a time limit, right? So is this time limit? Do you think the managers should set like a time limit? On how I don't. I on think um, I think the team should set the time limit. You know, in reality, most of the time when you ask someone for help, it's usually not your manager that you ask first, right? You know, your boss is busy, they're doing things. It's usually a peer that you ask first. And so since the first line of defense, you wanna call it tier one support for the question that you're trying to get answers is usually a peer, they're the ones that are probably gonna be interrupted. And so, um, you know, even in volleyball, I would ask the team to come up with what the social norms for this team should be. Like, what do we think our rules should be? What are we going to hold ourselves accountable to? And honestly, if I set those rules, they could be too stringent as a manager, or they could be way too lax. Uh, if amazing things happen, if you just ask your team, what do you think our rules should be? And I've done that on a volleyball team and people are like, oh, if you're five minutes late to practice, you should have to do an hour of sit-ups. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like that, that's not necessary and it's not actually constructive. Maybe you do two minutes of sit-ups, right? Like, and I can help temper some of the things, but you can get a lot of insight into what your team values just by asking the question rather than telling them the answer. Because you might be surprised at what you hear. They may be a lot more stringent than you would be. And then you can tone it down. Like that's a very different message when a leader asks the team, what do we want to hold ourselves to? And then the leader actually softens it a little bit. You know, you come across as accommodating, right? Um, whereas if I told you what it was, it would sound like I'm a dictator. Uh, so I'm a big believer when it comes to team norms and processes that we have those discussions in something like a retrospective, like, you know, every sprint, like every week or two week, whatever your sprint cadence is. That's nice. What are some of the bigger, bigger mistakes that um, clients make when negotiating salaries and progressing their career? Um, you know, the knowing what your worth is a tricky thing. Um, you know, I don't, uh, all the things I recommend today, I'm, I, you know, I don't have any financial stake in, but I'm a, uh, I'm a big believer in leveraging experts, right? Standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will. And um, I really like educative.io. So for those that don't know, educative, E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E.io is a uh, website where you can learn a lot about a lot of different technologies, but they also have a really great uh, course on uh, salary negotiation in the tech industry. And the beautiful thing is, is that this website has been designed by developers. So there's absolutely no videos because no developer wants to watch videos when they're trying to learn something like they, they are like looking for how to change the playback speed to like two and a half speed. They're like, Oh my gosh, this is taking forever. Where's the transcript. I don't want to watch something. I want to read something. I read much faster than I listen. And, um, uh, and they have a subscription model, but for like something like $200 a year, you get access to their entire library and the negotiation course and the uh, grokking the system design interview course are the two things I attribute to like having a successful interview process at Coinbase. Um, tons and tons of case studies to go through. How would you design YouTube? How would you design LinkedIn? How would you design Bitly? How would you design Google? All of these things it was a invaluable resource. Um, I'm, I usually, 
I think the biggest mistake is someone just undervaluing themselves because they really want a job. And I think mm -hmm. there is a path forward for any company that's of reasonable size. And I would say over 500 to 1,000 employees at a tech company, you should definitely research what's called compa ratios. You guys know what compa ratios? Mm -hmm. You ever heard the phrase? So a compa right. ratio is um, is a normal distribution where 1.0 represents the median of the salary for say like any title for like a senior developer, a 1.0 will be a certain salary amount. So at a company mm -hmm. where salaries are different for the same job title, you need to understand the distribution. Like some people might be paid 20% less than the average, but some other person mm -hmm. may be paid 20% more than the average. So it's very common at a large company where you negotiate salary for you to have compa ratios from say 0.8 to 1.2. Uh, mm. That's a 40% variance for people that already work at the company. Uh, so um, Coinbase was not like that. Coinbase, everybody got paid exactly the same uh, mm. if you lived in the similar area. Uh, it was just a decision they made, which I respected for um, underrepresented minorities, quite frankly, because like, I didn't like the idea that if you're not confident in your skills or you don't feel confident being a hardline negotiator that you like paid for it dearly in terms of dollars. So philosophically, mm -hmm. I love the idea of everyone getting paid the same amount for the same role, as long as you live in a similar cost of living area. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so my boomerang question back when, when we get into comp is to say, can you tell me what the, um, mm -hmm. what the 1.0 comp ratio is for this role? Because mm -hmm. they should actually be able to answer that question. They should be able to mm -hmm. tell you what the median is. And then you can do the math about what the range is about plus or minus 20%. Um, and if they won't tell you that number, then that's a red flag to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, what are some of the biggest, uh, like amounts that people have been undervalued that you've seen? Like. Uh, I know a, a lot of times it happens accidentally, Kevin. It doesn't, it's not, a lot of times people really aren't trying to hose. It's not like a recruiter is trying to screw people yeah. over. That's usually not what's going on. They're chartered with filling the role for as cheaply as possible. Um, mm -hmm. That incentivizes some really goofy behavior, right? You know, if you find somebody willing to accept $80,000 for a role where the 1.0 comp ratio is 120, the recruiter might feel like that, that's a home run until that person finds out how much their peers are making, right? How long right. do you think that person stays there when they find out they're making 50% less than someone else, right? They may stay six months or a year, but they certainly feel suckered. And now that recruiter is having to refill that role all over again. Uh, so the most I've ever seen has been when someone made a switch from, uh, a related job title family in a bigger company where the ranges mm -hmm. were just really different, but the roles were similar. So I'll give you an example. There is a, there is a job family called PM marketing manager. Um, and so they are a product marketing manager. They don't have the same salary range as a product manager, but, but I know a PMM that went into a PM role and came over as a senior, uh, and I thought she was making about 150,000 was kind of what I expected her to make mm -hmm. in salary. And she was making about $110,000. So wow. about 40% less than the median. Now, when you move over, she was moving teams and moving job families at the same time. So her new manager 
just didn't think to look at her compa ratio until the next annual review came up. And then she looked at it and her eyes bugged out of her head. She's like, oh my gosh, why is this person's comp ratio like 0.6 or 0.7? And it's difficult to fix that. Uh, you almost have to get your VP to approve new heads to be opened and then cannibalize the heads and spread the money out in order to address the comp ratio at that point. So one thing I really strongly encourage managers to do when they get an internal transfer is absolutely look at the comp ratio and make sure you don't have some outlier where because of the team they were on or because of the role they had, you need to address that early. Before, you know, this, person, this person's manager just didn't know until like six months later. And then they were in a real sticky spot. Luckily, that VP got budget for five more employees and then didn't hire anybody. They just distributed that five employees worth of salary to fix some of the systemic under uh, underpayment that was happening. But there's not every VP is going to volunteer to do that, right? You know, they're mm -hmm. encouraged to do less with more. But luckily, this was a great leader. So I respect him for that a lot. Would you say engineering managers look at the salary before sending out an offer? Or is it like left to the recruiter to do that? Most companies I've worked for, uh, you know, the recruiter, we don't deal too much with the salary. You know, um, this is for companies I've worked for. So this is mostly Zillow and Coinbase where I was a manager. Uh, I, uh, the recruiter might tell me, hey, this person's asking for a lot of money. So I just want to make sure they're not a junior in your mind, like that we, we should expect to get a lot out of this person if they're asking for this much. But the negotiations of the salary is really usually handled um, not by the manager themselves. It's handled by recruiting. Like, are, will they fit in the range? You know, are they asking for too much? Um, you know, if they're asking for too little, most recruiters will pull them up at least to the midpoint. Uh, I mean, at least to the minimum. So and say, hey, we don't we need to pay you. We will get in trouble if we undercompensate you and you're working here for a certain amount of time. Um, mm. That's where the bringing up comp ratio is really important. So you don't come in below, you don't want to come in below 0.8 on a comp ratio, quite frankly. So, Yannick, did you have any uh, questions? Uh, uh, not at the moment. I was actually looking up comp ratio and um, <clears throat> was trying to figure out how it's calculated. <laughs> yeah, it's usually your salary um, mm -hmm. divided by the midpoint for the, for that range. So like if you have a $120,000 salary mm -hmm. and the midpoint for your job title, like for the say 50 people in your company that have your same job title as 100,000, then your comp ratio is 1.2. So if your salary is identical to the mid to like the, the median, basically, mm -hmm. uh, then you have a 1.0 comp ratio. Now, I have not often seen comp ratios over 1.0. Uh, and the reason for that is that the outliers skew the median, right? Like if you heard this joke, like, you know, Bill Gates walks into a bar and the average net worth of everyone in the bar is now like a billion dollars, right? Like, you know, it's like it doesn't, he, he skews the average. So you will have people who skew the average. It does not mean you have an equal number of people below 1.0 and above 1.0. The average is usually around 0.8 to a little over one. And then you'll have a few people who negotiated the heck out of their their deal or the knew the VP or knew the hiring manager or knew the recruiter and negotiated some monster deal. 
and they um, they sort of uh, skew things the other way. Yeah, you've worked at a lot of prestigious companies, Zillow, Microsoft, Coinbase. Uh, can you tell us about some of your good experiences and bad experiences, kind of like comparing and contrasting for us? Sure. Uh, I find it helpful to have sort of a framework for this. So like I'll talk, talk about people, product, process, and career for mm -hmm. each of those, right? Um, because not everything is better at every company, like physically impossible, right? right? right. So uh, at Microsoft, what I loved about working at Microsoft was one was it's very prestigious and it's so large that you could move teams every year for the rest of your career and never run out of teams to work for, right? It's just so big. There is a beauty in not having to change your benefits package or 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 fill out a new I nine form, right? Or to uh, or to change your four hundred one k provider, right? Uh, and still stay within the umbrella of a large company and still yet be able to grow in your career for twenty or thirty years. And so that's definitely in the pro column from a career perspective for Microsoft. Um, but it's also so big that it's not even really fair to call it one company, right? There are divisions yeah. at Microsoft that are 10 times larger than maybe the average software company moving around. So it is very different, the experience you would get, say in an Xbox uh, versus Microsoft mm -hmm. Office uh, versus R&D uh, versus uh, Azure, right? Those they, they all have different centers of gravity for their culture. And so, it's almost not fair to think about Microsoft. It's like saying I met one person from the United States and therefore everyone from the United States is like, no, that's not true. Come on now. Like it's too big. There's just too many, like that is an extremely small sample size. So I loved the internal mobility at Microsoft for career. Uh, that was great. Uh, I would say Microsoft, when I joined, was so big that I could not expect it to to be in a hyper growth stage. It's just beyond that, right? It is now, um, if it were a person, it would be an overweight 48-year-old white man that goes golfing, like, in the evening a couple days a week. Like, you know, it's just like, they're not that, there's no way Microsoft would triple in size or quadruple in size beyond what it already was, because it was now a, a mature software company. Yeah. It means it's a great place to learn good practices because they have mm -hmm. made a lot of mistakes already and they have a lot of people who have worked there for a very long time. But uh, it is more like a, uh, a merry-go-round company, right? You know, it's very mm -hmm. stable. Um, and if you are a person who likes to learn and you get bored, a big mature software company, those teams usually have very narrow charters, right? Like, like you are only working on this much of something that is very large. So when Terrence gets bored after two years and he wants to learn something not in this narrow charter, but Terrence doesn't want to leave the company, he has to go find a new merry-go-round. Like you got, you know, he's got to get off this merry-go-round and find another one. Um, uh, a hyper-growth company is more like a roller coaster, right? It is not a merry-go-round, right? Um, and at a place like Coinbase, it's like a, a roller coaster blindfolded. Right. It is like a and, uh, you know, there are probably two things that can happen when you get off a roller coaster. Right. You can say that was the most amazing thing ever. I want to get on the roller coaster again. Or you like throw up in the garbage can that's right next to where you get off because you feel nauseous because you went upside down. Or maybe it's both. Maybe you throw up and then you want to go again. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, 
but it's never boring, right? It is not, you're not leaving because of boredom. So a roller coaster company, younger companies, hyper growth companies, crypto companies, um, you will not develop depth as quickly at these hyper growth companies because what you're asked to do changes so much from day to day. Okay. So it is not narrow and deep like at a Microsoft. Um, it is very broad, but it is shallow because things are changing so quickly. You never have enough time to develop depth. Some people love that because they love the challenge. It's like playing dodgeball, right? It's like you, you never, you don't, you, you have a plan going into dodgeball and it just all goes to hell. Like you, you know, it's like, you don't know what's going to happen. Some people thrive in that environment. Some people don't want that at all. They want the predictability and the stability of working for a larger company. Well, they don't have to worry about a layoff tomorrow just because they wrote some code that accidentally made it to production and now $50 million got lost the next day and now 20 people have to be laid off, right? So wow. that can happen, um, you know. Um, does that, does, uh, that's kind of the differences between Microsoft and Coinbase. Uh, Zillow, I'm still a huge fan of. Like it will probably be the favorite, uh, my favorite company I'll have ever, ever worked for in my career. Uh, mm -hmm. maybe a close tie with some game development work I did early on, but the culture there was just, you could not beat it for what I was looking for. So one thing I talk about in my coaching is just find a company that aligns with your values. Like, do you want to show up and have to be a different person at the company than you are in regular life? Like, do you want to have to put on a mask and be like if your company is like a hardcore type A, like be brilliant or we're going to fire you tomorrow, but you're not that kind of person, then it's just going to wear on you. Like you can do it, but it requires energy and it will exhaust you eventually. At some point, you will just be exhausted being someone different at work than you are at, at like at, in real life. And uh, you spend too much time in, in your day uh, at work to have to be someone other than who you are. And I never felt that way at, at Zillow. I felt like it aligned really closely with my values. But career-wise, was not hyper growth like Coinbase either. And compensation wasn't as high as it was in FinTech. So I decided to give hyper growth FinTech a try. Um, and the comp was very high. I mean, I probably made, I mean, nearly double at, at Coinbase that I did at Zillow. Um, but you know, there's a reason I made double, you know, like the demands were very high. The expectations of working hours were very high. Um, uh, and the culture was just very different. You know, it was uh, a very high performance expectation culture. I, I didn't even know. Sorry, go ahead. go ahead. I was gonna, I was gonna say, um, how do you, when you switch from, let's say like a merry-go-round to a roller coaster type company, um, how do you make that switch like mentally, like, uh, to be able to handle those long hours and those managers that possibly can come down on you. Like that's gotta be mentally taxing, right? It is mentally taxing it. You know, if you know, you're getting into it, it is a lot easier than if you don't know, <laughs> like it, it would, it's, it's a bad thing, Terrence, to think you're showing up on day one for a, a merry-go-round company. And then to realize yeah. at the end of day one, that it's a roller coaster company. So do your homework, right? See yeah. if you can find people on LinkedIn who already worked there or even better people who used to work there like 12 months ago, because now that mm. they've moved on, they will probably be very honest about why they moved on. Yeah. So go find someone who used to work for the company that you're thinking about joining. 
send them a LinkedIn message and ask them like, hey, these are my values and this is what I want from the next chapter in my career. Do you see company X that you used to work for as a place where I could achieve that? And yeah. most people will be quite helpful. Like they left for a reason, right? Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh and most people are more than willing to to be honest with you and say hey terrence you'll you're going to get one two and three that you want in spades but four and five are going to be really hard so what so what's more important to you is one two yeah. and three more important or is four and five more important to you on your goals list so there's that knowing that what you're getting into and then secondly just making sure you have a really good manager that you feel like you can be open and honest with. So I always, um, there's some questions that I will, behavioral questions I will ask my manager before I accept a role to see whether or not um, they're the kind of person who are, is willing to be vulnerable. Um, you know, you can't say, hey, are you a vulnerable leader? Like, well, who's going to say no? Like, everyone will say yes. Like, that's like saying, are you a good employee? But, uh, but you can say, hey, can you tell me about a time when a direct report came to you with the with the difficulty ramping in the first three months of their career and 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 how did you support them you know mm. the answer to that question is very telling about whether or not they will be supportive of you if you struggle early on because you're moving from merry-go-round to roller coaster if they say well i expect people to be able to ramp by themselves and if they come to me asking for help i see that as that this isn't a good job fit well that's a very clear answer right um it, and it may actually save you from making a bad decision to join that company potentially if that's not what you're right. looking for. But if they say, oh, Sally came to me and she said this and I realized she had really too high expectations for herself and that we had to get clear on her goals because she was trying to move too quickly. And uh, we made sure that we to set her up with a mentor, one inside the team and one outside of the team. And, um, and then we just had more honest conversations about sleep and stress and working hours. And it worked out really well. Like how much better do you want to work for that person than the first person, right? Like I want to work for the second person. So you got to give people opportunities, especially your bosses to tell those stories, um, that, that align with some of your concerns. Roger, cool. Jack, do you have any questions? Yeah. So I saw this on Reddit somewhere and they were talking about like moving from a developer to a manager is not just a promotion. It's actually a career change for you. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on that? I absolutely hundred percent agree. In fact, I have very strong feelings about this. Um, I will, I will try and temper my strong feelings so that this is, um, uh, so this is safe, still safe for work. So, uh, Making a transition from IC to manager is like trying to jump the Grand Canyon with a bicycle. Like it is really hard to do. And uh, because it is a completely different role. Anyone who tells you like this is an IC role and this is a manager role is either not a very good manager or has never been a good manager. Like I, I don't know how else to put it. It is a completely different shift in role. You now succeed as a manager because your team succeeds. It has very little to do with what you do directly as a manager on whether the team succeeds or not. Your job now is to create an environment where success is more likely. That, that's almost it. Like also grow your people, right? Make sure that you put them in positions to be successful. But 
it has very little to do with, with what you do. You, you now have indirect influence over your people and you have some influence over the process, but the product is like what comes out of the factory. You know, I'm a big believer that the machine that creates product is the people in the process together. That's like the big machine that where the widgets come out. But, um, I don't believe you fix the product by focusing on the product. I believe you fix the product by focusing on the people and focusing on the process that creates the product. Um, so, um, uh, I actually, I was such a firm believer in this at Zillow. Um, I coordinated, uh, the creation of what's called a community of practice, which is where all 200 dev managers at Zillow come together like once a month. And we talk about a topic that's important to all dev managers so that we can become better managers because Terrence may only be one year into being a manager, but his background is different than everyone else's get because he's a different person and he may have something to bring even to a director of engineering that doesn't have the experience that Terrence has, right? This is the different chess piece part. Mm. So I can learn from Terrence. If he has the same job title as me, there's something Terrence can teach me. I don't care how long he's been in the role, even if it's been a week. And so bringing together people who have the same job title and learning from each other, peer mentoring, um, it was just something I was a big believer in because a lot of companies aren't, aren't very good at supporting people through that transition from IC to manager. If, it, if you saw this on Reddit, you've probably seen this, 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 uh, this statistic. It's like what 50% of all new managers fail in their first 12 months, um, at being a manager, right? Um, I paraphrase that to 50% of companies do a terrible job of transitioning people <laughs> from IC to manager roles successfully. How, what do you expect from them? They need support, uh, to be able to make that transition. So I couldn't agree more with your, the Reddit post that it is a completely different job. Um, when I was a manager, um, you know, this is a very divisive topic. Um, in the last four years of being a manager, I've looked at like probably four PRs, um, uh, maybe one a year, um, not very many. Um, those are electives. It is more important that I make sure the person who's working crazy hours feels supported and then that I force them to take a day off. Um, or that I talk with them about a frustrating meeting they just got out of. Those are the things I need to focus on so that people feel heard and respected and valued and that um, I help them grow in their careers. The PR stuff is like, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's an elective. It's not really a core critical part of doing your job unless you're at a very small company. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, uh, you, you mentioned that um, you you know games is pretty much what brought you to technology. I feel like that's pretty much what brought a lot of us, including me. Um, did you ever get into like programming your own games? Oh yeah, like uh, my first job out of uh, my first real career job out of school was for a company called Humongous Entertainment, and they made uh, Pajama Sam, Freddy Fish, Spy Fox, Backyard Baseball, Backyard Hockey, uh, a bunch of games that people I manage now played the games I made when they were kids. So if you want to feel old, yeah. like that's a way to feel I old. I played Pajama Sam growing up. Yeah, there you go. So yeah. see, I'm officially a thousand years old now, <laughs> so it's fine. Um, in fact, if you go to mobygames.com, they have a game credits database. You can type in my name and you can see all the, um, the games I worked on, uh, oh, either wow. as a game developer or as a game designer. That's um, cool. 
and so it was very formative, like working in games at that time in mm -hmm. children's software. Like I would, I, I want to hear uh, Kevin's story, but when you work in children's software at that time, uh, these are all hand-me-down machines. Like, you know, you, you, they have like the parents, like 12 year old computer, and then they bought the new computer and they gave it to their kids. Um, our games weren't even installed to the hard drive. They spooled directly wow. off the CD. So the bar is zero bugs. The bar is no bugs because there's no way this game company is going to rerun a gold master <laughs> because there's a bug <laughs> because there's a bug fix like and and some five-year-old is going to be crying because you know she doesn't get to see the end of the story because you messed something up like it's too expensive to fix a bug when the bug is on media right yeah so the quality bar is just like it's all the way at the top there's no real room for any bugs mm -hmm. uh, and that is a great way to start a career great way to start a career is to like just not tolerate any errors at all um and then to work on things that kids love like oh my gosh talk about an amazing group of people that um ex-disney animators working on classically drawn hand animated stuff um in order to make kids smile and then you know how would you not want to work long hours at a game like on a company like that it was amazing very creative people how about you, Kevin? Like, what was your gaming experience like? Okay, so, you know, I pretty much started with the Nintendo. Uh, when I was three, I got an NES. And, you know, I'm 38 now, so I've been gaming for a very long time. Um, and, you know, graduated to, like, the Genesis, Super Nintendo, and, you know, all the way up to uh, I got the Xbox Series X now. Uh, but, like, in terms of game development, you know, I've always wanted to make my own game. But, you know, back then, like when I joined it, kind of like in the 90s, it was like really difficult because, uh, you know, the resources weren't nearly as robust. They didn't have like all these game engines like Unity. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had to like learn C, you had to do everything from scratch. Um, I learned graphics programming and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know. Are, are you familiar with an RPG engine called Verge? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah, I was actually in that scene for a little while, uh, you know, trying to make my own RPG. I never, I, I kind of got ADHD, so I never stay around long enough to finish something. But, you know, that kind of gave me the passion to, you know, really want to pursue it further. But, uh, you know, get, game programming is hard, man. You got to learn a lot of math and, you know, data structures and algorithms. Man. Yeah, um, the, constraints, the constraints can force a lot of creativity. Um, oh, I had, a, I had a friend, gosh, this probably was in the nineties and he worked for a company called sucker punch, um, which made a couple of really oh. popular PlayStation games. Like Sly Cooper mm -hmm. is one of them. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Steve is his name and he was one of the engine programmers. And, uh, I was talking with him maybe what about six or seven years ago and he's on a PC and he was running Gmail and then he opens up the task manager and he sees that Gmail's taken a gig of memory. And he just mm -hmm. loses his mind, right? Because like when, when he made Sly Cooper, the original game, it was a full-time 3D rendered game that ran in four megs of addressable memory space, wow. four megabytes. Like, and the goal was like, what, 30 to 60 frames per second, full yeah. 3D game, cartoon thing, running in four megs. And he's just like, 
how is it that Gmail yeah. that's not even animating is using a gigabyte like you spoiled, spoiled little programmers? Like what is wrong with you? And so <laughs> to, to grow up in games, working on them is to, is to try and eke out like NASA style, like every single like bit of memory and make it as optimized as possible. Uh, and later in your career, you're just, you look back and you're like, wow, um, I can't believe that Excel is taking, you know, 980 megs for this <laughs> stupid little spreadsheet. Stupid like, um, yeah, it's like, I would like to send some of those developers to work in game development for a little while and then come back. So. No, well, what is causing these programs to be so bloated? Like, what are the mistakes these programs are making? I mean, is it mistakes? I mean, I don't know. Memory gets so cheap at some point, you know, um, you know, NASA made things fit in 40K because that's what they had to deal with, right? It's very much a necessity as the mother of invention kind of thing. You know, my son and I built a gamer rig for him like a uh, year and a half ago. And he has like, I think he has either 32 or 64 gigs of memory, right? In his gamer rig, wow. you know, and it's, and it's like, um, does he need that? No. How much does it cost to double the memory in a PC when we were building it? Like 200 bucks. It costs like 200 bucks to double the, like, why would you not? And so at some point, and then AWS comes along and now you have auto scaling. And so it's like, if that compute can scale and you can afford it, is that a problem you need to solve anymore? Or is your problem that you want to focus on not efficiency, but just getting more customers willing to pay you money? Exactly. Yeah. And oftentimes it's just the latter. You know, you could make it take up half as much space, um, but is it a good use of your time? Um, sometimes not. Have you have you dabbled with uh, game development after uh, leaving? You know, uh, leaving the industry? No, I haven't. I keep in touch with some of my friends who do, and some of them are are ultra nerds when it comes to uh, optimization. And so there is a guy I know named Brad. Um, and he was responsible, uh, so we're going back really far, but um, uh, there was one of the very first adventure games that came out was a game called The Curse of Monkey Island. Um, and oh, it was yeah. it was a game where there were like verbs that you could click on, like look, you know, use, pick yeah. up, whatever. And then you click on the image. So it was like this concept of like a verb and a noun. So you would click on the verb and then click on the noun. And it was a way to like sort of uh, uh, have static backgrounds, but interact with games. and. Uh, Brad uh, started at the company that worked on uh, Curse of Monkey Island and they underestimated his capability. We'll just put it that way. And those games used to come, if you remember, Kevin, this might be even before your time, I'm not sure, but you, you, they would come on like three and a half inch floppy disks and you would get like 25 of them, like when you got the box, right? And you'd have to like install yeah. like all, it'd take like a half an hour. And they, they underestimated him so much that he just decided to show them what he could do. And he took one of the upcoming games. Uh, I don't think it was Curse of Monkey Island. I think it was a different game. And he dropped the number of discs required in half. So instead of the game having to ship with 10 discs, it only had to ship with five. Um, and then they started to take it more seriously. And so optimization for him became a way for him to demonstrate his career. So I keep in touch with Brad on occasion. He's working on a game that takes up 100 bytes of memory right now, um, uh, wow. which is which is a very simple racing game, as you can imagine. And it um, he actually writes it directly into memory using like you know some old school C programming. Usually uses Memset mm -hmm. for a lot of his stuff, 
and will actually write over the buffer so that that way he can get like a, a road that kind of goes diagonal on the screen by overwriting the memory to the next line, which just gradually shifts some of the, um, the road on the racing game uh, back and forth. But uh, those That's people's cool. brains work very differently than mine. So um, I do not do any more gaming since the gaming industry. That's for sure. So. Yeah, I know uh, Sucker Punch, they recently produced uh, Ghost of Tsushima. That's uh, probably one of the best games that has come out in recent, you know, recent times. Yeah. Yeah, I do find the games I'm attracted to are usually the games that are different or unique in some way. Not necessarily blockbusters. You know, I don't have time for like uh, Call of Duty or anything like that. But um, but Fez, I find fascinating. Like if you've okay, never played yeah. Fez, the puzzle game, uh, it's just very interesting uh, 8-bit game where you shift the perspective. Um, it's kind of like Monument Valley in the sense that perspective plays a part into the puzzles. Um, um, but fascinating game for Xbox. Uh, a lot of indie games and things like that. I like to be able to pick up and play. Yeah, Kevin's big into indie games. So we're like, ah, Terrence, you actually got this one indie game on Xbox Game Pass. And I'm just like, okay, that's it's interesting. <laughs> it's just far out, like left field. I'm waiting for all the big hitters to come on PC. Like, uh, I'm, I'm, come five o'clock tomorrow, I'll be playing Spider Man for the first time. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Like, uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm happy that uh, a lot of these bigger uh, brands are finally porting over their stuff, like, legally over to PC. Like, because, you know, there's, there's emulators and stuff. And I'm not trying to side, you know, sidetrack the discussion into like piracy and all that stuff, but it's like, do I really want to spend five hundred dollars on a console when I have this machine here that could play like you know everything under the sun that I throw at it? Yeah. No, it's just a matter of like reduce the friction for me to pay you for what you've built. That's it. Right. That's all yeah. I want to do. Like I don't want to spend six hundred dollars because that's prohibitively expensive for this, and I don't want another. And if you're trying to buy a PS Five, I mean, wow, it's been like two years. Can you even get one still? I mean, I think you can now, but yeah, um, but like. I will tell us a, a, a tangent on your tangent. Maybe it'll bring us back on the topic here. But like uh, one of one of the people that used to report to me at Zillow, uh, he left to go to Noom, like the weight loss company uh, that you yeah. see the ads for. And he felt so bad about leaving that he bought me a PS5 when he left. Um, and I didn't even know how he got it. I guess he must have known a distributor or something like that. But I felt like embarrassed to own this piece i had it for like a year and never played one game like i never even bought a game for it it was just sitting in my living room um and it's one of these things to your point of like the cost and at that cost at that price they are losing money on that console too that console yeah. probably costs a thousand dollars to build right and they're selling it for 500 mm -hmm. uh or whatever it costs these days and i just i didn't feel good holding on to something i wasn't using that i know somebody else wanted i ended up giving it to a um a relative um who was in town from norway who was trying to get one and i was like well take mine i don't even i don't even use it um, um but the friction is just too high when it comes to platforms right the goal should be i will even pay you 50 dollars for that game even though it only costs 20 dollars on your native platform yeah. i i just want to give it to the people who built it I want to give it, I don't want to give it to some publisher. I don't want to give it, right. I don't want $30 of that going to PlayStation. I want to right. give it to the builders, to the creators, right? Who yeah. made this game and worked their butts off to make it such a great experience. 
uh, I would like games to have like a trial version or something where you can actually play the game before I buy the game. Back in the day, we had demos. I don't know yeah. about nowadays, not so much. Yeah, the, the version of demos these days are like freemium and casual games, right? Where it's like at some point you get to like level 180 and that's like really impossible to continue unless you pay it's, the money. And it's all yeah. microtransactions. Like I'm like, I'm not yeah. paying money for this skin, <laughs> this skin, that skin that's going to help me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I now have a different... I used to think freemium was insidious. I used to like not like freemium. But at some point, have you ever heard the quote, you know, hey, if you walk by someone, a street artist, and if you stop for more than three seconds, you owe them a dollar. Like, like if, if they were that entertaining for you, then yeah. like, then, then, and they were able to capture your interest and you appreciated what you, the experience, then you owe them some money. Uh, you don't have to give them a hundred dollars, right? You give them a couple bucks, whatever you have on you. I now feel the same way about games. So like if a freemium game has captured my interest for a minimum amount of time and I'm still enjoying it, then, then they do deserve my money. Um, you know, yeah. I, I look forward to, you know, uh, to gratuity being a way to be able to pay developers, right? Like that maybe there is a, a, a game where I can just give the developers a tip, right? I can give them a $20 tip uh, and that maybe I paid $10 for this game, but honestly, I've put in 20 hours of gameplay into it. it is worth way more than $10 to me if I'm still enjoying it after 20 hours. Um, and I can afford to pay it. So why, why would I not? Um, Metal Gear Solid was that way. Like, I kind of wish I could pay more money to the developers of Metal Gear Solid. Like, the first time I played that game, as soon as I finished it, I just started it all over again and just played it again through as quickly as I first? could. Uh, first the first one? one. Yeah, first one. Um, yeah. Are we talking like the, 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 the OG to, uh, Pixel one or like the PlayStation one? PlayStation yes. one. Okay. Yeah. 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 But I remember playing that game and being like, I don't want to stop playing this game, but it ended, right? Like, like how amazing of a feeling have you, like how many games have you felt that way where you finished and, it and you're uh, like, I don't want this to be over. Uh, God of War. When yeah. I finished, same when I thing. God of War on, yeah. on PC. Like, when I got to the end of that, I was like, Kevin, I don't know what I just experienced, but like, I can't wait for Ragnarok. Like, yeah, I don't want to wait. I, I, I see the hype now. I see the hype. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I want to erase my save game. I want to start all over because yeah. it was just if like I could, I, if I, yeah, if I could like erase my mind and start all over from like fresh on that game, I would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I want to mention God of War, but because I, I, I felt like it's it's so new, you guys are like OGs in the in the game in the industry. Um, but that's how I felt playing God of War one. Yeah, in like two thousand, yeah. and I can't remember when it came out, but yeah, that was that became my favorite game of all time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and there's some great articles out about uh, the sound design for God of War, not just the first mm -hmm. one, but for the second one, and mm -hmm. it's it's fascinating. Um, there's a certain gosh, I can't remember what it is. There's an Egyptian uh, enemy that you fight in this game that like balances on a stick, like like on a staff, right? Um, in God of War two, and I can't remember the name of it. It was Succubus or something like that. But um, and the first time you fight it, the the music changes, and like you know. And now you're just stressed out of your mind because like, you're like, Oh, is this a boss fight? Like what's going on? And it's really difficult the first time you fight this, this, uh, this new enemy. And then like you play 10 more minutes and then you're fighting two or three at a time. 
but the music doesn't change right and the, there's an intentionality by the developers to be like like to almost to support you by not changing the music to be like no 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 you got this you got this you can do this you know how to fight this guy uh but had the music changed at that part uh you would have felt like it was an impossible task and there's just all these tiny little things in, in god of war the, you know, the cinematography but the button mashing and the timing and mm -hmm. this combination of semi-cinematic uh that you still control that's been really hard to do in authentic ways and then to combine it with mythology i don't know oh, i love i love god of war yeah, yeah. So Cinematic great. studios they, they put in a lot of work like uh i used to this is why i'm less of a proponent before before i had before i had like the income to buy games, I would pirate a lot of games. And so uh, the experience wasn't the same when you could just like get things for free. But now it's like, when I realized like what it takes to be a developer and like how much it actually takes to like figure out the game design and like there's so much, you have to pay, you have to pay these people like the sound directors and the people who come up with the music and the art and choreography, like there's so much money that goes into like designing a game and then it comes out for 60 bucks. Like I could, I could show that or wait for a sale. Like, it, I can't imagine the the level of uh, work it comes. Not, let's not even get into like game design, but like let's just say concept art. Like, like let's start there. Like, it, somebody's spending hours coming up with that art and design and coming up with new enemies and ideas and stuff. It's just not fair to try and get it for free. Yeah, you know, and you couldn't be more right. Like it is really hard to make things easy and people who are really good at making things easy. They, they disguise so much complexity yeah. that, mm -hmm. that only engineers will think about, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, and you know, Uber and Lyft is usually the, like the go-to example, like that I can click two buttons on my phone and a car shows up. Like that is magic. Like, like if you've been around long enough, you're like, oh, but what about, what about cars in the area and what if you can't get in touch with them and what like you know what if they yeah. already have a ride and what if their ride is like what if they're stuck in traffic and you thought they would be there the and they're not like all the edge cases have you ever done uh have you guys ever looked up the flow chart uh that was posted for slack to send a notification yeah, yeah I, think I saw that one on there. oh my it. gosh yeah. yeah it's just like it's got like 60 boxes on it. Like, and this is just like, uh, I, I would post it here, but I don't, I don't have rights to post it, but maybe Kevin can post it. If you just do a Google search on blowchart to send Slack notification, it's like, it's enough to make any developer like run for the hills, uh, especially if they're earlier in their career. And you're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea you had to think about all of those things. I, I appreciate product managers and product owners for this because they think a lot about this compared to the developers. They're like they think all the edge cases. Oh, okay. What what if this happens? What if that happens? You know? Yeah. Let me do a screen share. Not sure if I can share because we got like uh, so many people on, but let me try it again. Okay, here we go. Yeah, here you go. 
is this even the whole picture? I think there might be a little bit at the top too. So like, this is the flow chart just to send a notification in Slack. <laughs> there you go. That's the whole thing. You know, and it, it, when you look through it and you look at the questions they're, that they're asking, it, it makes sense. But to your point, I think it was Terrence about this up, you know, a good PM is the one asking all of these questions or even better. It's already in the spec, right? Like, you know, well, what happens if they have DND set up, you know, or what happens if they have this and what if it's muted? What about this? Yeah. And what if you're appearing offline? Do you want it? What should the default behavior be? Should, should you get a notification if you're appearing offline? Like if you're appearing offline, you probably don't want a notification by default, right? But what if you've overridden that that setting and you said always like notify what trumps what like what what's the order of precedent for those if they're if you have conflicting settings it's like it's dizzyingly complex and it's something that none of us even think about right it's a ding right or like a little red number like a little white number in a red circle in slack mm. yeah that's true there's so much uh, complexity that gets hidden by programmers that yeah. Kind Take of their job, brand. right? Yeah. Yeah. They're doing yeah. their job right. They're hiding it from you in a good way. And then you have to, and then you have to make it simple for the user to use. It can't be complicated, mm -hmm. right? You have to solve for all those too. Yep. I'm, I'm realizing yeah. that like that's a tough one too. It's like I, I have to keep this simple, but I have to be able to manage all this complexity in the background and not only it's got to be simple, it's got to pass. Uh, it's got to pass all integration tests, right? It's got to pass unit tests. Yeah. It's got to be secure. Can't yeah. be violating GDPR or any of these sort of sort of privacy regulations. Can't be a net drain on performance compared to the previous version, right? Needs to integrate with the new platform that you haven't shipped yet, but like you don't want to have to refactor this two weeks from now. Got to get it done in the timeline that you originally estimated for. Um, needs to be legible so other people can understand it. Like yeah. there's a lot of those things. Um, uh, I don't think, I think it's one thing that non-developers maybe don't fully appreciate is like how much our decisions are trade-offs. There is no, there's often no best answer uh, that will always works in all situations, right? It is like a, I have three options to choose. This one's the fastest but I'm worried about corruption, like under load, right? Or like this one is the, uh, this one is the safest, but it's not the most performant. And this is the one, but I know this code is going to get thrown away in six months. So I'm going to pick this third option. But when somebody reads it, they're going to be like, what were you smoking when you wrote this code? Like, no, no, no. Like you feel like you have to like almost explain it with a comment. Like, I know this is terrible, but we're going to replace this code <laughs> in four months anyway. Please don't yell at me. Please don't do a get blame and come find me later on in life. Like, <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I know uh, Terrence, she has to head out in a little bit yeah. so uh, we can wrap up and uh, do a part two soon because this is a great interview. Just for the sake of not going on too long, did, did any of y'all have any additional questions? Uh, I have a question that pivots from all of us about OKRs. Sure. Okay. Do you think the team should have an OKR or individual person should have their own OKRs? Uh, I believe the team should have OKRs. Um, I was also an advocate of me creating my own OKRs to share with my manager. Uh, this is something I did not at every company I've worked at, but when 
you are in a situation where you're preparing for a promotion, like, you know, you feel like it's within six to 12 months. Uh, it behooves you to find a way to arm your manager with the information they need to advocate for you with people who don't know who you are. <laughs> so what is the right way to do that? Well, Kevin's a great guy. We should promote him. Like, sorry, you get the family feud red X for that. Like you're not going to get promoted because they think Kevin's a great guy. It's, it's, it, it helps, but it is not what's going to get you to the level to demonstrate that you've been performing at this next level for at least six months, which, you know, promos are about three things. Like, do you, does the company afford mm -hmm. to promote you? Right. Uh, is there work available on the team at the next level for you on this team? When you get to like staff, that answer is not always yes. Uh, you may have to move teams to get promoted, even if you are capable. Uh, and third, have you already been performing at that level for probably at least six months, if not longer? So we're raising the expectations on you. So I see OKRs as a way to measure my ability to perform at that next level, to be a part of that third, that third criteria. So I have been a fan of creating my own OKRs, especially in the first 90 days at being at a company, because it's a way to demonstrate objectively that you are ramping onto the team in a measurable way. So um, I would never force my directs to come up with their own OKRs. I would ensure they had goals and that we discussed their goals in every one-on-one -on -one or, or at a minimum every other one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but I felt as a manager that it was important for me to create my own OKRs. Um, but OKRs can be done poorly, just like anything else. Um, it's very easy to say, you know, ship the widget by the date. That's not an OKR, right? Um, anyone who tells you that is not not very experienced in them. Um, How to Measure Anything is a great book that talks, the whole book is about OKRs and it's got a bunch of great case studies in it, how Google does it, um, how a bunch of other companies do it. So it's called How to Measure Anything? How to Measure Anything, yeah. I can, in fact, I can tell a quick story about this. Um, so there was once a very manual process uh, for at Zillow for signing up to be a landlord like in order to list your rental on Zillow. And you would go through this wizard, uh, but it would not real-time validate all of the information that you provided. It would be done in batch, like after the fact. Well, these people are like you and me. They have jobs. They're not like professional property managers. They do this on the side, like they own a unit. Uh, they don't have a lot of time to just sit there uh, for two or three hours and wait for you to send some validation failure email. So the goal was to try and validate that info live, like as you went through the wizard, oh, that address isn't right, you know, or, or, or your payment method info is not correct. We won't be able to collect rent checks for you. Uh, or, uh, or we can't find your address. Uh, like uh, it doesn't seem to exist in the town where your, where your rental is. Like, is it new, whatever. And so the goal was to make that real time. Uh, it turned out there was like some awful once every 24 hours, this job would run and verify if anything had failed. And then it would email the landlord and say, hey, you screwed up. Come and do it all over again. That's a terrible like, user mm -hmm. experience, right? Go do it all over again or go fix the mistakes. Why are you telling me a day later? And so um, our OKR was to shorten the amount of time it took for validation from 24 hours to three seconds. Like that was the OKR right? Because three seconds is real time enough. It's not perfect, but it would be good. Um, so we went to go look at the cost to make it three seconds. And 
you know, you could probably tell me what the cost is to make it three seconds. It's a complete rewrite of the system that existed. Um, yeah. You know, we need some SQSQs. We need some SNS topics. We probably need to build a database that doesn't exist yet. Um, uh, and then we need some uh, we need some AWS instances to host all this information as well. So it could be like a three month project. And we said, eh, is three months of the team's time worth it to shorten this up? And the answer was, we're not really sure it is. Like maybe, maybe it is good enough. But you know what I did because it was an OKR that was um, uh, continuous, not discrete. I went and asked the DBAs, "Hey, you run this job once every twenty-four hours, right?" They're like, yeah. I was like, "How long does it take for this job to run?" And they're like, seven minutes." And I was like, "Wait, what? It takes seven minutes to run this job? Yeah. Why does it only run once every twenty-four hours?" Well, no one ever asked us to run it more than than once once every 24 hours. Mm-hmm. How long has it ever taken to run? And they're like 10 minutes. I was like, can we run it every 15 minutes? And they're like, yeah, you want me to change it right now? And I was like, yes, can you change it right now? So for our OKR, we went from 24 hours to 15 minutes. minutes and we wrote no code, wrote no code. So a good OKR opens up that alternative solution to yeah. exist and get you a, a, a significant amount of improvement with a solution you didn't originally envision, right? That's what a good OKR does. So I'm a big believer in OKRs. Um, I believe they should focus on the what and not the how. And that, then that way you give the developers the flexibility they need to come up with a solution that you may not imagine. So if I was looking for a promotion in the next six months, mm-hmm. should I create an OKR for that six months? I would, you know, um, if I wanted to get promoted the next six months, my manager should know already, like my manager should know when I'm within 12 months. If I want a promotion within the next 12 months, my manager needs to know. Um, secondly, what I do is I take, you know, the bullet points that exist that say what it means to be a senior, like, you know, every company has these, you take that list and you color code it red, yellow, green, and whether you're not doing this at all you're doing it inconsistently or you're doing it consistently. You take that list and you color code it for your current level and for the next level. And then your manager does it separately for your current level and for your next level. And then you bring it together and you talk about where did you give yourself a green, but your boss gave you a yellow? Or where did you give yourself a red and your boss gave you a green? Because it is an incredibly uh, uh, aligning exercise to get on the same page with your boss about where your gaps are. Anything that's not green for the next level is an OKR, right? It's an OKR that you can write and then you can talk about what projects are coming up where I can demonstrate this feedback. Um, And then if Kevin's my boss and Kevin gives me a yellow and I give myself a green, he may not just have the examples uh, because he didn't know that I did it. So it's a learning opportunity for for me uh, to educate Kevin about something I did that he just didn't know about because it happened in some private Slack channel that he's not a member of. Oh, I never knew that you did that, Brian. Can you send me screenshots? So it's not always that the boss is right, but that this exercise of doing these these red, yellow, green color coding separately and then coming together to talk about it helps solidify what the real gaps are. So then you can go make OKRs and figure out what to do about them to close them. And then lastly, if you want your promo in six months, I'm a big believer that the IC should write their own promotion email, like um, like the ad advocate for themselves. So they write the email saying, 
you know, in the third person, Kevin uh, deserves, uh, I'm putting up Kevin for this promotion from senior to staff engineer for the following reasons. And that I edit it, but that Kevin owns it because learning to advocate for yourself in the written form is, uh, is a skill you should learn. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great information. Like I never thought about actually like coding green and, you know, red coding those once. Yeah. And that's not my idea. I stole that from someone else who told me about it, but like that, that's kind of the whole point of tech, right? It is this apprentice domain field, right? Like there's no, you don't go to a class where they will teach you about this red, yellow, green thing. You will learn that from someone else. And so the best you can do is learn from the people who've been around and who've done it for a long time and take what's relevant, right? Discard what is no longer relevant and add what is uniquely your own, right? You have very Bruce Lee quote sort of thing so yeah, yeah. any question. other questions guys i actually have a quick question sure so something you just said just triggered something in my mind uh you were talking about that it's kind of along the lines of what we were talking about earlier um you just mentioned apprentice <laughs> i'm actually an apprentice uh software oh, great software. yeah and um i just wanted to know what your thoughts were on, on, on there, there, there seems to be a lot of these apprenticeship programs popping up now um, in the past two or three years in America. Um, they've been more common in other countries for sure, but um, lots and lots of them now, and, and a lot of them they're hiring a lot of you know apprentices. Um, what are your thoughts on these programs if you had any exposure to them? So. Can I, is it, is it equivalent to say like a boot camp program is similar to an apprenticeship or those uh, synonymous or are you thinking something else? So they would usually, they would usually like hire um, boot camp grads. Okay. Kind of like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I like apprenticeship programs in principle. Um, I think there are a lot of companies going around thinking they're so amazing that they, you know, they don't need to hire junior developers, you know, um, you know, and there's some famous companies that only hire seniors, like Netflix only hires senior developers, right? Like the, you can't be a junior dev and work for Netflix. They're like, why would I bother to train you? Like there are so many people that want to work for Netflix because they get paid so much. Why should we feel like we have to take on training people? Um, uh, I guess there's an element of truth to that, but, um, but I want to work at a place where people grow where people work at a company where people are known to grow as developers or as people or as leaders. Um, and so uh, I love the apprenticeship programs. They require dedicated resources outside of the team. So like, if, let's say you're an apprentice for like the, I don't know, um, some backend platform team, someone outside of that backend platform team needs to be in charge of the apprenticeship program. And that, that, that team needs to have dedicated resources to make that successful right there needs to be a person talking with you about what your apprenticeship experience is like and feedback needs to be flowing back to the owner of that apprenticeship program so that the manager can get feedback that you don't feel comfortable sharing directly with the manager about whether they're whether this team is a good team for apprenticeship for apprentices not every team is right it is a often a drain on a team to add an apprentice right because they they need more help um, you know, compared to just hiring nothing but senior and staff engineers, it doesn't mean it's the bad idea. Like I'm a, 
I like having a, a spectrum of experience on a team because it allows senior and staff level engineers to demonstrate they can grow more junior people. That's one of the expectations at that level. If you don't have any junior people or you don't have apprentices, how do they demonstrate that, right? It's more difficult. Uh, so I, I enjoy apprentice programs, but you have to have support from leadership in those orgs that, hey, if we take on an apprentice, we're basically like, if we have five people on our team and we we get an apprentice, we now have a team of effectively four when it comes to like scoping out how many story points we can take in a sprint, right? That person who's helping, who's being the mentor for that apprentice, they're probably at their, their, their velocity is at least dropped by half. So if you're willing to make that conscious investment and get less work done because you value growing people, then I think it's a great idea. I think where you get into trouble is when people say that they're willing to do this apprentice work and take on an apprentice or, you know, or a, like a, a college hire. Uh, and yet they don't expect the, the implications of what they just agreed to, <laughs> which is like, Hey, it's going to take them twice as long. And the work they do is not going to be as good as the work you do. Well, obviously they're an apprentice. Like that's not an insult to them. That is just like an acknowledgement that they, they, they're early in their career. So as long as you account for that, when it comes to planning and OKRs, right. Um, <laughs> then, then it's fine. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, anything else? What about you? Uh, you have any closing thoughts, Brian? That's a great chat. Um, I, I like oh. that it that it wandered. Um, my my brain wanders probably like any any good ADHD person in the tech field does, like to uh, things that interest us. So, um, um, just thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, we definitely want you to come back, man. Uh, we have so many different things to talk about, but uh, just to keep this from going on too long, I guess we'll end this one here. Great. Thank you everybody for tuning in. Thank you for coming, Brian. Uh, thank Roger, you, Yannick. Y'all have a good Thank night. You. Thanks, Brian. Bye. Bye.